Let's talk a little bit about the theology of a street sign. I know it's a little bit cruel. It's the middle of June and I just put up a sign about snowfall. And we're all trying to forget this long winter that would never end. So please forgive my insensitivity, but I want us to examine the theology of a city street sign as it was examined in an article that I read by the same name. You see, this sign clearly says, no parking after two-inch snowfall. But, is that a command, don't do it, or a description? Try as you may, you won't be able to. The sign doesn't say where the snow must fall. What if it's in the next county? Does the snow have to fall all at once, or could two or three snowfalls accumulate past two inches? And what if some of the snow fell before midnight and the rest after? And what, what happens if it's a 1.9 inch snowfall? And what if it snows more than two inches? Is this sign limited to snowfalls of exactly two inches, no more, no less? And what if it snows two inches, but it doesn't stick? And does that mean the first snowfall of two inches after the sign goes up or every snowfall after that? And does this mean cars only or does it include trucks? And what about boats? Does the sign prohibit parking everywhere in the city after snow or just on the streets? If you've already parked before the snow falls, can you stay parked? Because technically you're not parking after the two-inch snowfall. Does it mean after in the sense of in the manner of so you can't park the way the snow falls? And how soon after the snow falls can you park again? Now, recognizing all these difficulties of interpretation, do we just throw our hands in the air and go, no one can ever really know what that sign means. And because it's difficult or unclear, it, I guess it just doesn't have any meaning at all. I mean, are we left with, what does the sign mean to you? How do you interpret it? I mean, try telling that to the tow truck driver as he's about to... T- pull you away. Or try telling that to the judge when you're in court and you're arguing against the ticket that you got and you say to the judge, well, yeah, but that's just your interpretation of what the sign means. And that may be true for you, but let me tell you how I interpret the sign, what it means to me. Do you think you're going to get out of that ticket? The meaning of the sign is not just about my interpretation of the sign's meaning. It's not about what the sign means to me or how the command of the sign makes me feel or whether I sincerely believe the sign is true or not. The sign has an objective meaning, an authority that's independent of, that's outside of me. It's unaffected by me and my opinions or interpretations. You see, the meaning and authority of this sign is the meaning that was intended, that was given to it by the author of the sign and by the author of the law behind the sign. So yeah, the meaning of the sign might be variously misunderstood as we asked all those questions. However, there is a true meaning of that sign. And that's the meaning that was intended by the author of the sign and the author of the law. So the meaning of that sign can only be rightly understood in context. It can only be understood in the context of the ordinance of the municipal law that the sign refers to. What was the meaning that the authors of the law and the sign meant by the words of the sign. You see, the job of any good interpreter is to try to understand the meaning. Try to understand the meaning that the author had in the text that he or she wrote. And this is true whether you're trying to interpret a city sign or interpret the Scripture. 
It's true when you try to interpret a bank statement or when you try to interpret those infernal instructions that come with those kids' toys and you have to put them together. There's a way to understand and it's understanding the intention of the author. To rightly interpret any of these things, we need to seek to understand the intention of the author. We're not left to our own or to what it means to us. You see, we need to seek and understand because we hear this all the time, don't we? That's just your interpretation. That's just your interpretation. Well, friends, can it be more than our interpretation? Can we move beyond interpretations and feelings and responses to the intention behind the text, the meaning that is inherent to it, that's independent from us? How can we rightly interpret and understand the Word of God? And asking that, let's pray together. God, speak to us. Speak to us as we seek to study your word because we want to understand not just what it means to us, not just our opinions and interpretations, not just imposing some meaning upon the text, but we want to understand the meaning of the text. We want to understand what you are saying to us. So, word of God, speak. Father, speak through your word to our hearts. And draw us to yourself today. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's begin this morning with the idea that the Bible does have an objective meaning intended by the authors. That there is a true and authoritative meaning to the text of the Bible. Because you see, some people today kind of approach the Bible as if it's some divine Rorschach test that God has given to humanity. The thing about a Rorschach test is that ink blot has no meaning in and of itself, so the observer gives it meaning. The observer applies and interprets that ink blot. And is that all the Bible is? A divine ink blot? A divine Rorschach test to which you now apply your meaning and your interpretation? So what do you see in that story? Hmm, interesting. What does that passage mean to you? Oh, curious. How do you interpret that command? Fascinating. Do we just bring meaning to it? Is it just some kind of divine ink blot without meaning of itself, but only the meaning that we supply, only what it means to us? You see, from this type of belief springs all of these comments like, that's just your interpretation, and that may be true for you, or that may work for you, but it doesn't work for me. Because if the Bible does not have a meaning in and of itself, then it is actually about me. Because it's all about what I think about the Bible or how I feel about it or my interpretation because I get to supply the meaning. It's not surprising that so many people try to approach the Bible like that because in many ways that is the spirit of our age. Philosopher Frederick Nietzsche famously declared, there are no facts, only interpretations. In other words, there's no meaning, there's no truth, there's only what something means to you. There's no objective external meaning, only subjectively what it internally means to you. And you see, the problem with this statement and with the philosophy that flows from it is that it's actually self-defeating. Because if there are no facts, only interpretations, then this statement is just an interpretation, not a fact. It's just his opinion, and it might be true for him, but that means it's not authoritative and binding on me. 
but we can actually just take them off the screen. You see, the statement, the philosophy, is actually self-defeating nonsense. And more than that, you and I know this isn't how the real world works. I mean, in accounting, in law, in physics, there are real numbers, laws, and principles, and they're authoritative over us, regardless of our interpretations, our opinions, or our feelings. You see, my interpretation cannot change the number in my bank account. My interpretation cannot change the meaning of a municipal ordinance. I cannot change the rules of a physical law, regardless of how I interpret them or feel about them. There are facts, reality, truth that are outside of, that are independent of me and my interpretation or feelings. For example, if you and I, if all of us here, were on a walk in the woods and I got a little hungry and I came upon a mushroom and I asked all of you, hey, do you guys think this is safe to eat? There'd probably be a lot of opinions. There may be many interpretations of exactly what this mushroom is, and whether or not the mushroom was safe for me to eat. However, regardless of anyone's opinion or interpretation, if I eat even half of the Amanita Philidos, the death cap mushroom, it's over for me. You see, my goal should not just be an interpretation of this mushroom that feels good or that fits my hungers or that's true to me or that's popular amongst the crowd. My goal should be to rightly interpret the identity and evaluate the safety of this mushroom. Because there is a correct answer. There is a correct interpretation of what that mushroom is and whether or not it's safe to eat. And my life depends upon that interpretation and getting it right. You see, there's a reality. There's a reality external to all of us that's authoritative. My opinion, my interpretation, my belief or disbelief can't change reality and the authority that it has over me. If I eat that mushroom, I die. If the number says my bank account is overdrawn, the check's going to bounce. If there were two inches of snow, I deserve the parking ticket for where I parked. If I jump off the roof in defiance of gravity, I'm still destined to fall. Our job is to rightly interpret and understand and conform to reality because our well-being, our lives, depend on it. We know this is how the world works. We understand this about the rest of the world. However, when it comes to religious belief, somehow we start to change our tune. You know, we might concede that in physics or mathematics or law, there's an authoritative reality, there's a truth that's independent of our opinions, and our task is to correctly interpret and understand and conform to that reality. But then when we come to the Bible, we might say, well, yeah, but what does that mean? It means something different to me. I interpret it differently. We start to deny that there really is a correct interpretation. There really is a reality. There really is an authority. That's just your interpretation. The Bible means whatever you interpret it to or understand it to mean to you. You supply the meaning. You see, we don't conform ourselves to what the Bible says. We try to conform the Bible to what we want. And we approach it like a divine Rorschach test. What's it mean to you? We supply the meaning. In his book, Reading the Bible Supernaturally, Pastor John Piper accurately diagnoses why you and I might be tempted to such thinking. Piper writes, If the meaning of a text is what the author intended to communicate, then it can have authority over us. But if the meaning of a biblical text can be anything inside our head, triggered by the text, God ceases to have any authority in our lives. 
You see, as we talked about last week, we said God is the author. He's the authority. We all want to fit God into our story, but God goes, no, no, I'm the author. You need to fit into my story. We really want God to submit to us. We don't want to submit to Him. We don't want to submit to reality. We want to deny the Bible has any real meaning because then we can deny that it has authority over us. We don't want to seek the meaning of the text. We actually want to supply meaning to the text because that means we are the authorities and we get to call the shots. So friends, did the speakers and the authors of the Bible have an intended and authoritative meaning that we're supposed to understand from the Bible Or is the Bible truly just some divine Rorschach test and your interpretation is just as good as mine? Interestingly, despite the spirit of the age and despite all of our opinions, the news media this week, we actually heard the secular media loudly championing the idea that there are correct and incorrect interpretations of biblical texts. Some of you might have heard the tiny little stir that came when on Thursday of this week, Attorney General Jeff Sessions quoted the Bible to defend the current administration's controversial policy of separating immigrant children from their families. Sessions said, I would cite to you the Apostle Paul and his clear and wise command in Romans 13 to obey the laws of the government because God has ordained them for the purpose of order. I'm not going to apologize for carrying out our laws. And after Sessions said this, it was amazing to me because every news reporter on the planet became a highly trained biblical scholar. (laughs) And all of them were loudly denouncing Sessions' interpretation and application of Romans 13. I didn't hear anyone say, well, that's just his interpretation. It's what the text means to him. It's what he gets out of the text. It's true for him. So live and let live. No, there was a loud and resounding, the Apostle Paul had an intended meaning to his text, and Jeff Sessions has it wrong. Interpretation, his interpretation, application of Paul's meaning, the media screaming, is wrong. And I'm not commenting on the wrongness or rightness of the policy or the interpretation. I'm simply commenting on the fact that all of a sudden we said, there is a definitive meaning, and he's got it wrong. It's refreshing to hear the authority of biblical authors affirmed by our media and to hear affirmed that the author of Scripture did have an intended meaning and that meaning is the authoritative one, which means that we need to understand the intention of the author. What was meant by the text? And we see the Bible affirm this time and time again. In fact, if you want to turn with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we find that Paul had written a letter to the church in Corinth. He'd written a letter, and then he received feedback on the letter, and so he sent this letter that we have, that we call 1 Corinthians, because it's the first one we have hold of. And he wanted to correct a misunderstanding that rose out of that letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 9, Paul writes, and he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, a reveler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat 
with such a one. You see, Paul had written a letter and it seems that they misinterpreted it. Paul says, my words had an intended meaning and you got them wrong. I, I didn't just give that to you as a Rorschach test for you to look at and react to. I had a meaning in my words. My words, I, you interpreted my words to mean that you shouldn't associate with all sexually immoral people, including those outside the church. But I only meant those who call themselves followers of Jesus, yet persist in immorality. Paul says, listen, there was a meaning behind my words. My words have meaning. And I was trying to communicate that meaning. And you could understand that rightly or wrongly. But the point is, it's my meaning, my intention that's the authority, not your interpretation. And you interpreted my words wrongly. So this is the correct interpretation. Because good interpretation seeks to understand the author's intention and then has to submit to and apply those words accordingly. You see, the Apostle John had to do the same thing. At the end of John's Gospel in John chapter 21, John himself had to correct the other disciples and their understanding of Jesus' words. In John 21, he writes, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, and the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, Who is it that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, what about this man? And Jesus said, if it's my will that you remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. And so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? See, John, the beloved disciple, he says, the other disciples misheard and misinterpreted Jesus' intention. Jesus didn't say, it's my will that he remain alive till I return. Jesus said, if it's my will. John affirms that the job of the hearer, the job of the reader, is to correctly hear and interpret the intention, the meaning of the speaker or the author. The meaning is found in the author, not in the reader. Or the hearer. And finally, one more example in John 11, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And it says, After saying these things, Jesus said to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking a rest and sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. See, Jesus started by speaking metaphorically. He intended to communicate that Lazarus had died, but the disciples misinterpreted his metaphorical communication. So Jesus corrects their misinterpretation so they understand his intention. That's authoritative, not their interpretation. Friends, clearly the authors and the speakers of the Bible intended their words more than to be a religious Rorschach test. Their words had intended meaning. So it would be a wrong approach for you and I to bring to the Scriptures our interpretations, our understanding, independent of the intended meaning. Our job is to try to understand what they meant. What was the meaning, the intention in the text? However, as we do that, we need to admit there are some texts in the Bible that are hard to understand. The truth, the meaning the authors intended, they're just not clear. 
And people of good faith and scholarship understand it differently. For example, recently, I and the elders have been studying on the issue of baptism and church membership. Because while our church, and I personally believe that the Bible teaches baptism is only properly done by full immersion in water and based on a profession of faith made by the one being baptized, there are other denominations and groups of believers who believe that the Bible teaches baptism is also for the infant children of believing parents and that other modes of baptism, such as the pouring or sprinkling of water on the head, is sufficient. Now, both sides approach the Scripture in good faith. Both are genuinely seeking to discern the intention, the truth behind the Scriptures, what was intended to be communicated, and yet both walk away with vastly different conclusions. Because sometimes the meaning the author intended to communicate is hard to discern. But church, understand this. Just because it's hard to discern the author's intentions doesn't suddenly make this a chocolate versus vanilla issue. Just because it's hard to understand does not somehow just make this an issue of preference. So choose whichever one you prefer then. Chocolate or vanilla are then equally valid options. One interpretation equally valid as another. But friends, we're not talking about ice cream. We're not talking about opinion or preference. We're talking about truth. And in the very end, one understanding will be proved correct, closer to the author's intended meaning, and the other will be proved incorrect, not in line with the author's intended meaning. It's not yet unassailably clear who's right or who's wrong. However, just because the intention is not easily understood doesn't mean we can just pick the one we prefer. We still need to study and seek in our best estimation, what is the author's intended meaning? Because it's not just preference. One of those understandings of baptism will be shown in the end to be a wrong understanding. And one will be shown to be right. But the Bible admits there are passages and there are issues like that that are hard to understand. In fact, the Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3.16, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, notice Peter doesn't say, Paul's intention is sometimes hard to understand, so just choose whatever interpretation you want of Paul's letters. The chocolate, vanilla, it doesn't matter, they're all equal. He, neither does Peter throw up his hands and go, oh, we can never know the intention of what Paul's writing, therefore let's just focus on what the text means to you. No, Peter, in fact, warns against those that would then twist Paul's writing for their own purposes. Peter says, don't give Paul a meaning he never intended to communicate. Don't twist the text. Don't deny or ignore Paul's intended meaning. Just because it's unclear or hard to understand, it doesn't mean there's no meaning. It doesn't mean somehow we're now in the realm of just your opinion. Even with the hard-to-understand passages, we need to work to understand the meaning the author intended to communicate to us. Because you see, there's a popular idea, and it's embodied actually in a meme that's going around Facebook right now. And in this meme, two men, whoop, there it is, two men stand on either side of a number. One proclaims the number to be a six, the other declares it to be a nine. And the caption reads, just because you are right does not mean I am wrong. You just haven't seen light from my side. Oh, that makes us feel all warm and fuzzy, doesn't it? 
See, nobody's wrong. We're all right. It's just perspective and opinion. Chocolate, vanilla, hugs, yay! The problem is the statement is nonsense. Someone edited this meme, crossed out the statement, just because you're right does not mean I'm wrong, and added some text. But one of these people is wrong. Someone painted a six or a nine. They need to back up and orient themselves to see if there are other numbers to align it with. Maybe there's a driveway or a building space, or maybe they could ask someone who actually knows. You see, the point is, the author, the artist, the creator of that number had an intended meaning. She was either painting a six, or she was painting a nine. And the way that the reader can interpret which one was intended is by the context. Are there other numbers? Is there a building? Is there a landmark? Is there someone familiar with the author and the intention of the author who can tell us what was the author thinking when she did this? Was she thinking six? Was she thinking nine? The number is not just left up to perspective or opinion or the reader. The context, the context is what reveals the intended meaning of the author. And church, this is one of the biggest reasons why we have so much confusion in understanding the scripture today is context. There's so much bad theology and so much diversity of interpretation. It boils down to us be ignoring or being ignorant of context. Because church, our biggest problem today is too many McNuggets. You see, just as with all of life today, we're guilty of fragmenting the Bible into little bits, into nuggets, into bite-sized nuggets. Yanking things out of context. And when we yank something out of context we're more prone to misunderstand it. I mean, the digital revolution has nuggetized our interactions and our understanding of life as a whole. One communicator observed, anything worth saying now has to fit in the constraints of a 140-character tweet or a six-second Vine video. Social media experts, whoever they are, say that the ideal post length for Facebook is 40 characters. The prevailing wisdom is shorter is better. We should package it as tiny sound bites. And the smaller it is, the bigger impact it will have because people don't have the time or the interest to engage deeply and to read widely anymore. And how does that affect our understanding of the Bible? Church, we content ourselves with Scripture McNuggets. Rather than the hard work of reading to understand a verse in its literary, historical, and cultural context, we yank the verses we like out of context. We use them to prove our points out of context. We use that verse to encourage ourselves or to justify our decisions or to win the argument. However, church, Scripture McNuggets, Bible verses pulled out of context, while they are tasty and while they possess some nutritional content, they're very easy to misinterpret and manipulate. I mean, just consider this one example. Jesus' words to his disciples. I hear this verse quoted all the time, and so do you. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. It's called the no one showed up for prayer meeting verse. When attendance at your meeting is far less than you expected, you quote this verse. There's only two or three of us here, but Jesus is here also. It's a scripture McNugget used as kind of a comfort or an assurance of God's presence whenever we gather for some sort of meeting. But let's read the verse in its larger literary context. 
If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Well, that changes the verse a little bit, doesn't it? In context, the intended meaning of this verse is not comfort when prayer meeting attendance is down. This is a passage about church discipline. And that if two or three witnesses agree on the matter, then Jesus is in agreement with them. Context is king. Correct understanding of the intended meaning is found by the context. Do you know that the English word set, S-E-T, set, has 464 definitions in the Oxford English Dictionary? The English word run has 396. Context gives you the correct meaning. Lana set her book on the table so she could play a tennis set. Context tells us what set means. Alex had to run because he left the water running. Context tells us what run means. Context reveals the intended meaning behind a word or a group of words or a Bible passage. And when we don't take the time to understand context, when we eat Scripture McNuggets, we tend to misinterpret and misapply the passages because we don't see the whole. And one helpful way to understand this is when studying the Scripture, church, we need to think apples rather than oranges. Think apples rather than oranges. Because when you eat an apple, you're taking a bite out of the whole. But when you eat an orange, you break it up into little pieces and you can just eat a piece at a time, and you forget that that's part of a larger whole in the orange. But with the apple, that part is always part of the larger whole because you're just taking bite after bite. That after every verse, every verse is part of a paragraph, and every paragraph is part of a chapter, and every chapter is part of a book, and every book is part of the book, the story of the Bible. Think apples, not oranges, not fragment, not a stack of chicken nuggets. It's a whole. As we talked about last week, the Bible's a story, it's a whole. So when you try to take a piece, a nugget, independent from the whole story, you're likely to misunderstand it. Every section of Scripture is a bite out of the apple, not an independent section of orange. It's not a Scripture McNugget, it's part of a literary, historical, and cultural context. So we need to not just snack on portions of Scripture. Church, we need to learn to feast on the whole meal. Seriously, fruit, nuggets, meals, it must be almost lunchtime. And it is. It is almost lunchtime. But just to assure you, we're not done talking about how we feast on the whole of the Bible. We're going to talk more about this next week. How do we do more than snack on Scripture McNuggets? How do we feast on the whole? How do we read in context so we don't misunderstand and how we, so we aren't tempted to manipulate a meeting? How do we use context to correctly interpret the author's intended meaning? That's where we're going to pick up next week. Because, friends, this is so vitally important. 
This is not just about correctly understanding the context of a city street sign so you can avoid a ticket. The consequences of misunderstanding the scripture are so much greater. Because in the scripture, in these sacred writings, they're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, the Bible is what God uses to reveal to us Jesus Christ, our salvation and our only hope. The Bible reveals that you and I can be saved from our sin, our brokenness can be healed, we can be reconciled to God, we can be made new. That Jesus Christ is coming by His death on the cross on our behalf and by His resurrection from the dead three days later, we can be forgiven and we can be made new. The Bible says that by the power of that resurrection, Jesus is going to make all things new. And friends, if you're here today, If you're here today and you've never seen in the Scriptures or heard from them this incredible truth that the Scriptures reveal, the glorious good news of the salvation that God has brought us by Jesus Christ, then please do not leave here without talking to me and letting me give you your own Bible and show you in the Scriptures where to begin reading so that you can see for yourself this great and glorious revelation of salvation through the work of Jesus Christ. And church, church of Jesus, take up the Bible and read. Read. John Piper, in his incredible book, Reading the Bible Supernaturally, discusses the transformative power of reading the Bible to grasp its intended meaning. He says the implications of reading to grasp what the author intended are life-changing. You'll never go to the Bible simply to see if you can feel inspired by whatever comes to your mind. You'll never be content in a group Bible study where the aim is for everyone to say what the text means to you. You will not be excited about a pastor who tells you interesting stories and talks about history and politics and psychology and personal experience, but never shows you what the biblical authors intended to communicate in particular texts. Instead, you'll make every effort to read the Bible in a way that opens the intentions of the authors and inspires you with that. Church, the Bible is no divine Rorschach test. Read the Bible to understand and be inspired by the truth that it intends to communicate. Read the Bible long to understand context, deep to understand intention, wide, not skipping the difficult passages. Read it high, prayerfully before God that He might reveal Himself. Read it together in community that your biases might be exposed and that your understanding might be enhanced. Church, Next week, we'll continue to talk about how to correctly read and interpret and understand the Scripture in context. But don't wait until next week to start reading. Go home, take up and read because God wants to be known. He wants His intentions to be known and He will reveal Himself to you. Take up and read, church that you might know the God who loves you, who has called you, and who has saved you by His Son, revealed to us through His Holy Word. Let's pray. Speak to us, Lord. Speak to us through Your Scriptures, through Your truth. Use them to shape and to fashion us into Your likeness. Glorify Yourself in and through our lives. May we know and may we be known. And Father, if there are those here who have never seen 
You revealed through Your Word. If there are those here who do not know the good news of Jesus Christ, I pray, Father, that You would move their hearts today. I pray, Lord, that they would seek, that they would open Your Word, and in doing so, that they would meet You. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.